Let's, let's, let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for allowing us time this morning to look closely at a subject that I know is near and dear to your heart. That's worship. And we, we know that you designed worship. You, you designed us to be worshipers. And I just, I, I just pray that, that you'll, you'll use my mouth to speak the things that need to be said and, and, and use the ears that are in this room and the ears that are listening to this recording later on to hear what you have to say to your children about worship. And we just thank you because we anticipate all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now before I get too, too started too far into this, has anyone ever done a real deep theological study on worship? You have? Well, you'll be quiet. <laughs> and the rest of you, that's, that's a good thing. I haven't either. But that's okay, because that, that will allow me to just kind of go wherever the Spirit leads, and if at some point in the conversations this morning, I say something that you don't really agree with, well, you can just blow it off and say, well, he wasn't trained. He didn't know what he was talking about. Fair enough? All right. Um, What I have learned about worship and the opinions I developed have have been through my own study. I mentioned mentioned that that I've led worship for 30-some-odd years, and one would think just by that statement that I know a little something about worship. Well, for a good portion of that 30 years, the answer to that would be, no, not really. Because I brought into leading worship what I had picked up from growing up in a church and what they did in that church. And, and I'd be willing to bet that if we, if we took a survey of the room, a lot of your perspective on worship and what what are you thinking when somebody says worship is based on how you were raised and if you weren't raised in a church you may not even know what I'm talking about but that's okay we'll we'll get there in a minute um I grew up in a uh, a small country church well no I didn't grow up in the church I, I grew up in a small town in eastern New Mexico uh, the cattle capital of the southwest thank you very much and I spent an awful lot of time in the little country church that uh, my parents or actually my mom my dad didn't have any, my dad stayed home and drank beer but my uh, my mom and and her family attended and uh, and I want to I want to give you a little bit of my history so you kind of know where my frame of reference is it was a it was a little brick building, and you can imagine the acoustics in there were just absolutely horrendous. The wooden, all wooden, polished up oak pews would put your leg to sleep at about 59 minutes. That way the service never lasted over an hour, guaranteed. We would come in, and somebody would open in prayer, and we would sing the first, second, and last verse of about three hymns. Then someone would get up and and give a message out of the Word, and we we would sing an invitational hymn, first and last verse only. 
we always had communion. And then after the communion, we'd sing just the first verse of a y'all get out of here, we're done hymn. You know, and that was it. That, that, was, that was what I grew up with. And uh, when I was, I don't know, I was, I was probably 14, 15, when I was old enough to say I'm not going to church and my mom didn't beat me around the ears and make me, I quit. That was just, that was enough for me. And then, then I met this, this really pretty girl down at the college in New Mexico. And we started dating. And, you know, I real, realized that she had something that I didn't have. And what that turned out to be was a relationship with Jesus Christ. So we, we got to, uh, well, let's just say spending a lot more time together. And uh, we got married. She grew up in a Methodist church. And, and they were, they were kind of like our little church. We, we didn't have instruments. So it was all a cappella singing. And some were really good and some were really not. Uh, now her church, they had, had, they had a, a keyboard and a, I think they had an organ too, didn't they, up in the mountains? And so they had somebody playing. And a few times that I visited her church, I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, well, that ain't right. But that's, that's another story. And, uh, and they'd sing out of the hymn books. And then in between the hymns, they'd jump to a, uh, to a, a responsive reading, they call it. Turn to 455, and then, and then the pastor would lead off with a phrase, and then the whole congregation in a monotone voice would read the response to that. And then it went back and forth like that several times. And anyway, after, after we got married, we, we were tasked with finding a church that we could both be comfortable in. And that was a little bit of a challenge because we were both from very conservative backgrounds, very conservative church upbringings, but we knew that we needed something different. And, and what made it even more challenging was the fact that we traveled all over the country, all the way from uh, Texas and Oklahoma, all the way to California with my work. So we, I mean, we lived in 30 different places during the first eight years of our marriage. So we were, we were in and out of a lot of churches, but more out than in. And I, I, can, I can think of a couple of really cute examples. We were, you know, knowing our background with the hymn singing and all that stuff, we, we stopped off in a church once, and, uh, and I can't even remember where it was. We, we sat down in there, and it was dark, and they had a worship team up there playing, and about the second song in, everybody in the building started speaking in tongues. My eyebrows went up, and my radar went off, and we out the door. And we, we visited a church in Henderson. It was a four-square church, and God bless this little lady. She came up and welcomed us as we went in to sit down, and uh, was so glad to see us there. It wasn't very many people there. And then she went on to explain what the four square was and what we would expect during worship. And we thanked her very much. And when she turned to go visit somebody else, we skedaddled out the door. Y'all don't know about four square, do you? That's okay. We'll, we'll get into that later. But I, I think my all-time favorite splash and dash was on the south side of Las Vegas. We visited a little church and the pastor wore red Sanzibelt slacks. They're, they're, they're the, the middle-aged male equivalent of jeggings or the leggings that the girls wear now. 
And uh, about halfway through his message, this man's up here moonwalking across the stage in bright red stretch slacks. And we looked at each other and we said, well, okay, you get the kids and I'll get the car. And we, were, we, we bailed. So we bailed out of a lot of services over the years. But when, when we moved to Vegas, we, we knew we needed to find a church. And we looked at around at a few. And we, we finally settled on one that seemed relatively safe. Now, this was the first church I ever led worship in. I haven't sung in a church service since I was probably, I don't know, 11 or 12. And, and that's, that's, a, that's a different story. You know, it, it, that's about when boys' voices start breaking and they're, they're uh, you know, trying to sing. And it just it comes out all funny. It sounds like you with some helium. And, uh, and I, was, uh, I was trying to emulate. I had an uncle that, that, that sang, a, a, sang the bass part on all this four-part harmony we were singing. And he would, he would sing, and I just, oh, I wish I could sing like that. And I was, uh, I was trying to emulate him one day. And my other uncle was sitting in the, in the pew in front of me a couple of seats down. And I'm back over here just croaking out whatever I was croaking out. And he looked back at me and laughed. And that was the last note I sang in a church for, I don't know, 15 years. Well, we, we got into this, this church. Uh, the, the, the pews, they had pews, but they were really, really comfortable. So I, w- I was okay with that. But, but instead of hymn books, they had words up on the screen, kind of like this. Instead of hymns, we were singing right straight out of the, the Red Maranatha book. I don't know how many of you have those laying around. They had a worship team. And I remember the, the first service that we sat through in that church, as, as the music started, I'm sitting there thinking, Lord, this is demonic. There's got to be something demon about this. But it turned out it wasn't. But, you know, at, as, we, as we continued to go to church, we got to know a few people, and, then, and we actually got acquainted with the, uh, the worship team, members of the worship team. Now, now Lisa, in, her, in college, had been involved in a lot of different music ministries and stuff like that. So she was kind of feeling the urgent so she coerced me into going and, and, and practicing with these folks and I wasn't all that enthused about doing so but you know happy wife happy life so I'm okay I went uh, we, we went and started started singing with them and they're practicing and and the worship leader's name was Pat O'Laughlin good old Irish boy had a voice that was just unbelievable and uh, at the time, I was the only other uh, hairy-legged boy that actually showed up for practice. So he said, "Woo!" and he handed me a microphone. I'm like, okay, what am I doing with this? And he wanted me to sing. So I sang with that microphone down here. Now, if you know anything about microphones, that's way out of the, the range. But I was not comfortable at all with my voice coming through that sound system. That just, I mean, I, I was definitely shy from a, from a very young age. And then to stand up here and, and be loud and be hear me being loud, that, that's just really, really uncomfortable. But uh, gradually got used to it, got, uh, got, got accustomed to that. And then about a year later, Pat did the unthinkable. He moved to Overton. 
And I was the only other hairy-legged boy on that worship team, so guess what? A new Christian, very immature. Uh, I worked construction. I worked with a bunch of iron workers during the day. Bad language iron workers during the day. And now suddenly I'm the worship leader in this church. Have you ever heard a worship leader use profanity from the platform? I've done it! I'd, I'd have folks come up to me after service and say, did you really say? And I'm like, oh, did I? Uh-huh. Oh, man. I, I, you know, you, you expect that come to Jesus meeting from the pastor, but that one, that one never happened. But, you know, God, God has, has brought us through a, a number of... That was a rough year, though. I'll tell you that. That first year, whoo, get, getting out of me, and, and uh, it, it was a challenge. Uh, and, and I didn't know a thing about instruments. I was, it was just what I could sing or, or what I could, you know, like my dad used to say, if you can't dazzle them with brilliance, baffle them with BS. And that's, that's what I would do. I would just get up there and babble. And that's what got me in a lot of trouble. But, uh, you know, over, over the course of the, the following 30 years or so, God has moved us from, from what was a fairly conservative church to more and more and more and more Pentecostal or charismatic and more open and expressive in worship. And, you know, I'm okay with that. You know, I could walk in and everybody starts speaking in tongues and I wouldn't be threatened by that. Where earlier on in my Christian walk, I'd have hit the door running. But uh, it's, uh, it, it's interesting the journey he's brought me on. And... Uh, I'm hoping he's bringing you on a, on a similar journey. But when I was putting the notes together for this, I, I went to my computer and I typed in worship. Did a Google search. And the, the definition that came up that I thought was kind of interesting is extreme adoration. Well, yeah, that could work. It's kind of generic, but that could work. And then I went over and I hit, you know, you, you've got several icons over at the top and you hit images. Well, I hit images. And, and the images that it gave me, almost every single one was a bunch of toe-headed millennials with their eyes rolled back in their head, crowded up against a platform with their hands lifted up. You know, that picture could have been a worship conference. It could have been a rock concert. Hopefully with worship conference, they weren't getting the underwear thrown on the stage. But... You know, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm sitting there asking myself, is that worship? So we're, we're going to ask ourselves the question, what in the world is worship? And, and a good place to start, you know, since we're talking about God, worship and God, a good place to start is at the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And, you know, you've... A little later on down the line, he, he picks a guy out of uh, Ur of Chaldeans named Abram. This is going to be the father of his people. He's going to bless many nations through him. Okay, we're good. Now, we're going, to, we're going to work through the next couple of generations and into Egypt. And then when God's bringing his people out of Egypt, that's when he starts laying the law down for him. You know, he starts with the Ten Commandments on, on the tablet, the first, first download from the cloud. Then, over the course of 
Exodus and Leviticus, if, if, if you've ever dived into those books, do it early in the morning, late at night, I'll put you to sleep. But God was really specific about what he liked, what he didn't like, what he didn't like about the nations where he was taking them. And he had them do some atrocious things as they were moving into the land that he promised because they were like way out in left field doing some really abominable things, you know, sacrificing children and, and whatnot. And, but he, he, was, he was really clear on what he liked, what he accepted, and what he wouldn't. And that's a great place to look when we start talking about worship. What is worship? Well, the, the first word we're going to see come up on the screen. Anybody read Hebrew? Well, let, let, me, let me pronounce it for you. It's shachah. That's the one on the bottom. And, 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 and when you're pronouncing something with a, with a CH or a K in it in Hebrew, it's got to have the sound to it. I was corrected one day by a Jewish brother because I mispronounced one of these words and he came up and told me that, no, that's not wrong. It's got a and I'm like, oh, but if your mouth is dry, you can't say it. But anyway, shakai is a, 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 a lowering of oneself, a bending down or prostrate before God. And this, what do you, you, you might want to note this down. This is the only Hebrew word for worship that refers specifically to worship to God. The only one. There are a lot of other Hebrew words for worship, but they're talking about worshiping the calf, worshiping the sun, worshiping this and that and the other. The only one for worshiping God is this one, Shekah. Just, just thought I'd throw that out there. Next one is Halal. Anybody ever said hallelujah? Well, you, you said praise the Lord right there. Halal means to rave, to boast, to be clamorously foolish, to radiate and shine the glory of God. I'm going to say that again. To rave, to boast, to be clamorously foolish, to radiate and shine for the glory of God. Now I'm going to give you an example of that. How many of you remember the story of David bringing the Ark of the Covenant into, into Jerusalem? That's right. You know, he, he had made two attempts. It came from Hebron on a cart. And they got as far as the threshing floor of Onan or somebody. It, it, uh, and and either, either the ox stumbled or the cart hit a rock or something. And, and it started to, to pitch. And one of the guys walking alongside the, the, the Ark of the Covenant. This is a sacred element of God. He reached up to prop it up to keep it from falling off the cart. Well, God smacked him like a bug and took him out. Well, that, that, that scared David. And uh, so he, he parked the ark and the, uh, the cart at the nearest house, which is Obed-Edom, and you, you can look him up. And he was, he was blessed for the, the several months that it was at his house. And then David went back to Jerusalem, and they started studying up on how to properly carry the ark into its resting place in Jerusalem. And then they went back a couple of, uh, a couple of months later, with all of the Levitical priests, and the, the, the ark has rings on it, and they, they 
slide poles into those rings, and then they carry it with the poles. They don't ever touch the ark. And uh, as, as, as they were coming back in, now it, it says that David was wearing a linen ephod. Well, number one, that's priestly garments. And number two, that's underwear. I'm just saying. And, and as they're coming into town, you've you, you got to picture this. David is the king of all of Israel, and he's just having a heyday. He's loving this. The ark is coming home, and he's dancing around and, you know, in his BVDs. And, and his wife, who was Saul's daughter, Michael, she looks out and says, Wow, how dignified the king of Israel is. And uh, he, he said, Well, I'll be even more undignified than that. But, but he, was, he was being flamboyant. He was just, he was letting it all hang out, you know, if, if you were uh, around in the 60s at all. Uh, because he was worshiping God. He was, he, was, he was expressing his joy in a very big, very demonstrative way. Let's halal. That's, that's, uh, that, that's putting it on up there. Now, the next one is Shabbat. I got the in there. Now, we're, we're, we're going to demonstrate this. What I'm going to need you to do, everyone stand up. On the count of three, take a deep breath. On the count of three, I want everyone to yell as loudly as you possibly can. One, deep breath. Two, three. <laughs> that was totally not it. I wasn't going to yell because I'm wearing a microphone. It would hurt somebody. <laughs> Okay, three. Three is the, the this many fingers. One. <laughs> okay, you don't have to yell as loud as you can. Just make a loud noise, okay? One, two, three. That wasn't it. Go ahead and have a seat. But welcome to Jericho. The, uh, the, the great shout that was emitted as they uh, marched around Jericho was uh, ruah, which means ear-splitting. And, uh, and then when they put the, the cymbals and the, the horns and stuff like that, it became truah with a T in front of it. Uh, what we're looking at here is shabak. It is to address in a loud tone to shout, Glory to God! Thank you, Jesus! Love you, Lord! That's, that's shabak. We'll move on to Yada and Toda. Both of these are expressions of thanksgiving with hands raised. Yada is hands, palms forward, you know, the international symbol of surrender. Toda is with hands pointed up. And, and the significance of the two is Yada is you are thanking God for what he's done. Toda, you're thanking him for what he's about to do. For what you're expecting. What you've prayed for. What you know that is coming. That's Toda. Zamar. I've got that one burned into the strap of my other guitar. That is to touch or strike the strings or parts of an instrument 
to make music on it accompanied by the voice. Barach. Barach. Yeah, they got it. You got to get the in there. Is 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 to bow down. That's pretty simple. Tehila is singing in the spirit. That's that's the sim- simplest definition I give you. Um, it, uh, it's a song of praise. It's singing in the spirit. Tefila with either an F or a PH. I don't know how you spell it in Hebrew. Is praying in the spirit, and tequila is just the spirit. So we got we've got tequila, tefila, and tequila. Now now tequila is the word that David used in Psalm 22 when he when he wrote that he inhabits the praises of his people Israel. Now I, I want to point out something. Now now David David operated very heavily in the prophetic and the revelatory. But the Spirit hadn't been poured out for another 1,500 years. So, in my thinking, singing in, singing in tongues isn't what he was talking about. When, uh, when I was learning how to play guitar, uh, we, we, were, we were part of a little startup church uh, a little storefront church, and our only instrumentalist was a classically trained pianist. I mean, this guy, he, he played off of pieces that looked like he had a mouthful of ink and sneezed all over it, just spots everywhere, I, and it was crazy. And he was amazing on the keyboard. But the challenge with that was he was a graveyard shift manager at Jack in the Box, and he'd get off work at 7 o'clock in the morning and sometimes 10.30 service didn't happen for him because he'd come home beat. He'd sit down in a chair or lay down on the couch and take a quick nap and wake up in the middle of the afternoon. So I started taking piano lessons just out of self-defense more than anything. And after about six months, I realized that wasn't going anywhere fast. And a friend of mine that I worked with handed me a three-quarter size Yamaha guitar, about that big, and a chord chart and said, try that. And so I, I did. And I was, I, was lead, I was actually leading worship in about six months beyond that with the guitar. But I would sit every morning in my living room and I would sit there with that uh, red Maranatha book in front of me and, I, and the chord chart. And I would sit there and, and strum and play and, and I would worship. While I was doing it, while I was learning how to play the instrument, I was worshiping, and, and I've had God meet me in, in such powerful ways right there, and I didn't know the first thing about speaking in tongues. I was just singing from what was in my heart. That's where you put a little check mark, because this is going to be a point to come back to. But what happens when we worship? You know, and I was, I was thinking this morning, a lot of, and shame on us, a lot of what we do as worship is because we expect God to do something as a result. And that's not the way it works. 
he, his is not a, a combination, three to the right, two to the left, you know, to boom, there it is, the glory of God. It doesn't work that way. But, but he's done some amazing things throughout the New and the Old Testament while people were worshiping. This first one is one of my favorites. In, in 2 Chronicles chapter 5.13, I want to give you a little bit of a backstory here. David brought the, the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Then he, he's sitting there in his mansion and, and the Ark of the Covenant is sitting in a tent. So he decides he wants to build this huge temple. And, uh, and Nathan, the prophet, said, yeah, go for it. And then, and then God spoke to Nathan that night and said, uh-uh, David is a man of war, a man of blood. He will not build a resting place for me. His son, Solomon, will. So David said, okay, if I can't build it, I can design it and I can bring in all the material. So he started, started the process. And then as soon as Solomon took over, Solomon builds the temple. Now, where we come to this point, the temple is built, the Ark of the Covenant is in there, they're ready for the dedication. Now, I don't think, no, I didn't, I didn't list in, I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of singers, musicians, instruments, and just an immense amount of noise going on in this place. And... As you can read along, the, the trumpets and the musicians joined in unison. Harmony is a good thing. To give praise and thanks to God accompanied by the trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments. The singers raised their voices and praise to the Lord and sang, He is good, His love endures forever. Then the temple of the Lord was filled with the cloud. And the priests, now mind you, the priests have been preparing for this day, this moment, for months you know, they saw the temple coming to completion. They saw this day coming, and they were preparing. They were sanctifying themselves, purifying themselves. I mean, they wanted to be ready to get, get in there and do their priestly thing. And the cloud filled the temple, and they could not perform their service. You ever been in a really dense fog? How about smoke? When I was, uh, I, was a, I was a tenant coordinator at the Boulevard Mall in Vegas after uh, when, when they were doing their big renovation. And part of that renovation and expansion, they had to put in this state-of-the-art smoke evacuation system. And you know how you test a smoke evacuation system? You fill a building with smoke. Now, are any of you familiar with the Boulevard Mall? The, the front entrance of the boulevard is like 30 feet tall, all glass. You can see, when J.C. Penney was in there, you could stand at the street and see all the way to J.C. Penney. We filled the building with smoke. The building officials did. I didn't. I would just stand in there watching. I'm going to say that again. The building was filled with smoke. From the outside, all you could see through that glass was gray. We had store employees coming through the doors into a smoke-filled building to go to work. And I'm like, huh? I couldn't wrap my eyes, I couldn't wrap my mind around it. 
Anyway, apparently with smoke, you could still function. With fog, you can't see very far, but you can still function. The cloud of the glory of God fell in the temple. They couldn't function. They couldn't do anything except fall on their faces. Let's, let's skip a couple of generations down. Solomon's great-great-grandson, Jehoshaphat. Now this was after the split. Israel and Judah had split. And there, there was wars back and forth. And there were a bunch of folks coming out against Jehoshaphat. Now Jehoshaphat was the king of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin. Just a small group of the original bunch. And he was panicked. He was sincerely scared that things were, were, were really bad. But he fell on his face and, and God spoke to him and said, don't worry about it. I'm going to give these people that are coming against you over into your hand. So he jumps up and gets everybody mounted up, gets his army and it ready, and, and then he does something that no other leader has ever done. Most kings going into battle put the biggest and the baddest guys up front. You know, that's, that's where you want your muscle showing, so you're, the guys that are seeing it coming up, like, ooh, you know, intimidation factor if nothing else. Jehoshaphat put the worship leaders up front with the instruments, and they led Judah into battle in worship. Now, and I want to I point out the, the difference when, when David, and you know, we, we've already covered it, he's a man of war. He was a man of battle, a man of blood. When God would tell him to go ahead and go, that he would give somebody into his hands, well, he still had to fight. They still showed up. They still did the slash and dash with the knives and all that. Jehoshaphat put his worship leaders up front. They were worshiping all the way. Hail Jesus, you're my king. You know, just doing whatever kind of a cadence they were keeping up. And they got to the battle, and there wasn't anybody there to fight. God had turned those men, those warriors that were coming against them, against each other, and they wound up killing each other off. All they had to do was clean up the mess. So, you know, that's hooray for God. The last one I want to touch on on things that happen when we worship is out of Acts chapter 16. Now, Paul and Silas were ministering in Philippi. And they were having some great success. But there was a, a, a slave girl that had a demon, was demon-possessed. And she followed them around the city saying, you know, these are servants of the Most High God. You know, and, and it started babbling. And, and she was telling the truth, but after several days, she got to where she was really annoying Paul. So he just turned around and said, come out of her. Well, the demon left. And the guys that owned this slave and who were making a tidy profit from the things that she was able to do with that demon now saw that their income streams just dried up and went away. So they took Paul and Silas uh, before the magistrate and laid their case, had them beaten, thrown in jail. And it says right up there, after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison. 
The jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. And when he received these orders, he put them way back in the prison, in the inner cell, and fastened their feet with stocks. Then about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Not out of a hymn book. I want to point this out. They were singing psalms. And the other prisoners were listening. And suddenly there was a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. All at once the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. I don't know about you, but I've never seen a master lock come loose in, a, a, uh, in an earthquake. I've, I've, seen, I've seen buildings shake, crack, crumble, but to have a, a chain pop loose, you know, that, that was an act of God. Big time. You know, there's, there's a lot of examples of what can happen when we worship. I mean, we've, we've seen three right there. God, God is in our worship. God fights our battles when we worship. God breaks the bonds that bind us, that hold us captive when we worship. Giving is worship. Work, uh, Pastor Greer teaches a series called Work as Worship. You know, anything you do is under the Lord. Jack Hayford has a, uh, he, he gave a quote many years ago. I've got it in my phone. I'm not going to read it to you right now. But it basically says that worship is an instrument of war. You fight your battles in worship. Ray Hughes with Selah Ministries had, has spent a lot of time focusing on the frequencies of sounds and light and how in worship those frequencies and the, and the changes actually impact the atmosphere that we're sitting in. That the atmosphere... You know, the atmosphere of slavery, the atmosphere of, of, of bondage. You know, there, there's, there's, there's some really some cool studies there. But, you know, God, as I was preparing for this, God wanted me to take a little different look at it. Rather than looking at what happens in, in, in the natural, even and even in the spiritual, when we worship, He wanted me to turn the focus around and look at it from his perspective. Zephaniah chapter 3 says that God rejoices over us with singing. When was the last time you had somebody rejoice over you? Nobody? I didn't think so. You know, as, as grand as grandparents, we can you know we can dote over our grandkids, but you know I mean the, the picture of God Almighty, the Creator of the universe, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning of the end, rejoicing, and and the word the the word rejoicing in in Hebrew puts puts in your mind a spinning a, a spinning like this. So God's up there spinning over us, 
as we're dedicating ourselves to Him and singing. You know, one of the biggest stumbling blocks, I think, that we, we face, and especially as new believers, is we have, we have a tendency to take what we know and, and imply it on what we don't know. We, we, we take the character, the characteristics and the attributes of our father, or if we didn't have a father, the lack thereof, and we place that on God. You know, if we had a father that was, was physically or verbally or emotionally abusive, that's, that's our image of a father, and that, that is, that's really hard to work around. Uh, if, you had a, if you had a father that wasn't even there, you know, you, 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 you place that on God and it, it's hard to put trust in him. Now, my, my dad was an amazing man. He, he was an outdoorsman. He was a hunter. He was a fisherman. He was an artist with basically anything he touched, uh, wood, stone, metal. And, you know, some of my fondest memories are times that I spent with him. But... He was not perfect. He made some mistakes. He made big mistakes. And I can't imply that to God. I've made mistakes. I've raised four kids. And I've... No nodding. <laughs> I've, I've made some big time mistakes too. But God is not the one that makes mistakes. You know, and... and you know, we, we, need, we need to get our, our mind wrapped around that. You know, and, and everything that our perfect Heavenly Father has done since the crunch of that first apple has been to restore us, to restore that connection to His children that was broken. Throughout the ages, He sent, he sent judges, he sent kings. He sent prophets to point the way. He sent his son to be the way and, and to show us. And the price was high, so he even wrote the check for the trip. And in the later days, we see in Revelation chapter 3, he said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He will meet us where we are. We, we don't even have to untrack. He will meet us here because He loves us so much. In, in John chapter 4, we, we, we see the story of, of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Jesus and His disciples were, were coming through Samaria, a, a little village in Samaria, and He sends the disciples on ahead to gather up some groceries or something. And He's sitting there, and this is the middle of the day, heat of the day, the Samaritan woman comes out to draw water. Now, first thing that's unusual is the fact that you don't draw water. The, the, it's a really hot in that part of the country. She would have, if she were in good favor with the other women of the village, she'd have been drawing water early in the morning when it was cool. She waited till it was hot and there was no one around where she could get out there and get, get the water. Well, that, that's, another, that's another lesson. And uh, Jesus asked for water, and she says, well, how can you ask for me? 
they went, they were bantering back and forth. And then they got into, she was, uh, she was, go- she was trying to start an argument with him is what she was trying to do uh, about worship. You know, you Jews say you've got to, you know, worship at the temple in Jerusalem and we worship on this mountain. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth. A time is coming and has A time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is spirit and his worshipers will worship him in spirit and in truth. For they are the worshipers the Father seeks. The spirit hadn't been poured out yet. And what I was as I was meditating on this, you know, it, it occurred to me, and it may not have occurred to anybody else, but it, it occurred to me, maybe it was just for me, that to worship the Father in spirit, my spirit has to line up with His spirit. There, there's got to be a connection there. And I have to stand on the truth of not only who He is, but who I am in Him. That's worshiping in spirit and in truth. You know, Jesus said in John chapter 15, I'm the vine and you're the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If our spirits aren't lined up with his, we can't do anything. I was going to think something. I don't know. Anyway, they they teach that there are four elements to worship. The the first two are horizontal. The first being a call to worship. You put out the call. You know, it's it's the it, if if you if you visualize it's the old church bell ringing, and uh, calling calling God's people in to worship. Come, now is the time to worship. Come, now is the time to give your heart. The second one is the proclamation to each other of how good God is, how awesome He is. We're encouraging each other to worship and by just proclaiming how good God is. The third one is where we go from from horizontal to vertical. Here, we're proclaiming to God how good He is. Lord, You are more precious than silver. And so often, we miss the fourth one. The fourth one comes when we've given our heart to God that's when He gives His heart to us. And that connection and that, that, that spirit enables us. It opens our eyes, it opens our mind, it opens our hearts to receive from Him. I have the privilege of, of working 
with two of my kids in, in our family business. So I get to spend quite a bit of time with them. And I absolutely delight in worshiping with, with my two daughters. But the thing that really... delights my heart and I'm going to try to get through this this young lady calls me almost every day and she's not calling asking for favors she's not calling you know needing this needing that she just calls to share her life to let me know something goofy or silly that the grandkids have done. To share how our frustration is with the Vegas traffic. To, you know, share, you know, something funny. It, she, she's, she's sharing herself with me. And I, and I delight in that. You know, and I look at that. And, and I look at the communications that I had with my dad before he passed. And... And as seldom as I called him, it must have broke his heart. Because I didn't call him very often. And when, when, I, was, when I was driving back and forth to Vegas from Pahrump, you know, I'd, I'd call him maybe once every couple of weeks. And then over the years, it, it, it just got further and further apart until it might be two or three times a year. And that, and that had to break his heart. And, you know, we've got, a, we've got a Heavenly Father that has done... everything to restore that connection with us and all we've got to do is dial home you know if I'm, I'm going to have Kelly come up Kelly and Shannon and uh, if, if Shannon if Kelly can the, the enemy's working on her back today And I'm gonna I'm gonna have them just just lead us in worship. I mean, you you worship is not about connecting with God. Or let me let me rephrase that. Worship is about connecting with God. It's not about posture. You, you look at those seven Hebrew words for phrase, they were different postures, different actions. But I, I can tell you that if you're sprawled out at the altar and you're thinking about, man, I've got to get home, I've got to mow the yard, the game starts at two, that's, that's not going to get you there. That's, that's not connecting with God. You know, Jesus spoke in Luke 18 about a religious leader that, that came before the before the temple and he was telling God how good he was how much how much he tithed this that and the other and how valuable he was to the to the kingdom and he said I'm grateful that I'm not like this tax collector over here and the tax collector wouldn't even look up he just bowed his head beat his chest and said forgive me Lord a sinner If you haven't connected with God in a while, He's waiting on you. 
He's not mad at you. He won't beat you up for how long it's been or the resources that you've wasted in the meantime. He just wants to hear from you. If you haven't talked to him, phone home, E.T. I just want to make this time available. If, if you need some, some time with Jesus, you, you can come up here, you can sit in your seat, and just connect with Him. Start with just telling Him you love Him. And you've missed your time. You know, Larnell Harris wrote a song many years ago that I've, I've sung a number of times. It's, I miss my time with you. And it's, and it's sung from God's perspective. I miss my time with you. Those moments together. I need to be with you each day. And it hurts me when you say you're too busy. That's straight from the chorus. Worship, worship is, is not to soothe God's heavenly ego. It's for us. So this, uh, I'm, I'm pretty much done, and and I just, I just want to pray over you, Father. Thank you. Thank you for this time that you've given us this morning. Thank you for the truth from your word and the truth that your spirit reveals to us and I just pray Father that that Father, we just want to connect with you. There's so many lost and hurting folks that don't even know that the line exists and all they have to do is reach out. And we just we just welcome you. Lord God, as you demonstrated to inhabit our praises to pour out your spirit as we reach out and pour out our spirit to you as we give you our hearts Lord give us yours give us yours for the lost give us yours for the hurting give us yours and we thank you thank you and praise you 